HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of A Taste of the Past is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, encouraging you to eat healthfully and nutritionally. Visit bobsredmill.com to learn more about their products. And use the code TASTE25 for 25% off your order. Monday, December 3rd, is our annual gala, Winter in the Garden, and you are invited. Celebrate the season with Heritage Radio Network at the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. It's the one night of the year where you can show your support for HRN while sipping on champagne, hanging out with our hosts, and bidding on one-of-a-kind silent auction items. VIP hour goes from 6 to 7, featuring a tour of the Bonsai Room. At 7, all of our guests can sample bites from some of our favorite chefs. Head to heritageradionetwork.org gala for tickets. This episode of A Taste of the Past is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, encouraging you to eat healthfully and nutritionally. Visit bobsredmill.com to learn more about their products. And use the code TASTE25 for 25% off your order. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly journey through culinary history. And on a recent trip to Rome that I took a few weeks ago, I met up with Katie Parla, Katie Parla, to talk about her thoughts on the recent renaissance of old classic Roman dishes, such as particularly pasta dishes. She spoke about the past, the present, and what she sees in the future for the food of Rome. Katie Parla is a food and beverage journalist, kind of an Italian food culturist, and a Rome-based expert. She earned her BA in History of Art and focused on Roman art and archaeology at Yale and then moved to Rome in 2003, where she earned a master's degree in Italian gastronomic culture at the University degli Studi di Roma Tor Vergata and became a certified sommelier by the Italian Sommelier Federation. Katie also leads food and culture tours of Rome. So if you're planning a trip there, she's definitely who you want to read before you go. You can log into our website at katieparla.com, where she writes about the food in so many great restaurants of the Eternal City. She has contributed to many guidebooks and has written a cookbook called Tasting Rome, Fresh Flavors and Forgotten Recipes. So listen in while Katie and I dish up about classic dishes. So, 
I'm here in Rome and going out to a lot of restaurants and met up with, no, actually planned to meet with Katie Parla, Katie Parla, who I've gotten to know over several years, and you've heard her on a couple of my shows in the past. Katie, it's great to meet up with you, however, in Rome, where you do all your work. Welcome back, Linda. <laughs> um, you know, something that's been on my mind is uh, Roman food, and not what Roman food has evolved into, if, in fact, and we'll talk about that, if it has evolved, but the Roman classics, you know, all the tours, we were talking about how many tourists there are in the city and how it's just continued to, to grow and gotten ever more present, you know, prevalent, the, the tourism, the crowds. Yeah, we used to have a low season here, now we just straight up don't. There's no lull, <laughs> right. And what are they all in search of? Carbonara, That's pizza. right, pasta, cacio pepe, the whole thing. You know, there's, not, there's nothing bad with those dishes, and but people are all going for that old mom-and-pop trotteria experience, which for a while was, was fading, and, and it was hard to find and recapture. Now it seems that a lot of places are returning, or a lot of chefs are deciding that's what they want, let's give it to them. What's your take on, on the, let's call it, the old classic Roman food. Well, that's that's such a huge question. I hope that we have four to five hours to discuss <laughs> this, but I'm happy to boil it down into a smaller set of topics. But yeah, you're right. Like a lot of people travel to Rome, especially in the post-war era, and they're, you know, if they were thinking about food, they were thinking about experiencing food in a trattoria setting, sort of like a simple place to eat that focused on the classics. Carbonara, cacio e pepe, of course, lots of offal dishes, peasant dishes, like uh, cotta la vaccinata, simmered oxtail, in other words, or tripe simmered with tomato, which is called tripa la romana. And people have been sort of collecting those food experiences for a long time. I mean, carbonara and cacio e pepe are 20th century dishes, but many others were consumed decades before, centuries before. Well, any of them, especially the awful dishes. I mean, of course. That's, you know, they were the Quinto Quarta. They were, you know, using, they were doing nose-to-tail cooking long before it was popular. Exactly, but before there was even, like, a trendy marketing a phrase to it. attach right, to it. Right. Um, and that, you know, that trattoria setting served a really important social function in Rome. It's where people would go, like, at lunchtime or at dinner time and eat affordably, seasonally, locally. And a lot of it was about the experience of being in a place where you were regular and where you were treated, um, therefore, with some sort of VIP status, mm -hmm. even if the food was very simple. Um, well, and it was neighbor. You 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 lived in the you lived around the corner. You lived in the building. You lived in, you know in the area. So you were a neighbor as with, well, right? Certainly in the trattoria. Let's say generally speaking, the trattoria di fiducia, the place that you trusted, was near your job or near your home. There were some exceptions where people would come to the center. You know, most Romans don't live in the centro storico, in the center of town where we're sitting. Most of them live outside of the walls, which are third century walls built during the empire. They sort of define the historic center of the city, but they really have a small number of residents living within them, just 120,000 versus Rome's millions of residents. Mm -hmm. So the treachery outside the walls would be frequented by people who were locals in that area or people from outside the walls would come inside the walls to eat at a trattoria like Settimio or Armando, any number of places. Um, and the comfort food that those places served formed the Roman canon, right? Some of the dishes that we've already mentioned. Um, 
and yeah, I think it would be fair to say that the romantic stereotype that sort of we conjure when we think of the trattoria, like a nonna in the kitchen or someone making hand-rolled pasta every day, that's vanished uh, by and large mm -hmm. for a variety of, of reasons. And not every place is the same. So sometimes generations just die out or children don't want to go into the industry or it just gets really expensive to pay rent. And so people pack it in or ingredients are too expensive to charge trattoria prices. So people change format. Um, so, you know, I'm always tempted to speak in generalizations about Roman cuisine, but then identify sort of specific nuanced trends or the, the way that sort of different parts of the food culture manifest, because this isn't a food culture that necessarily is like universal. You find different dishes evolving in certain areas based on the local economic needs. What about dishes like, um, you mentioned uh, cacio pepe carbonara, very Roman dishes, but then also puttanesca. You don't see as much, well, you see a matriciana mm -hmm. on the menu, which is, you know, tomato and guanciale, and, and so it's a tomato-based mm -hmm. sauce. But there are a lot of other dishes you don't, it just seems that some, the trend favors some classic dishes for a while more so than others. Alegrecha is finally coming back in fashion to maybe outplace Cacho Pepe, yeah. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, I think Grecia never went out of style in a way, um, but it, I think because there's such an interest both amongst Romans as well as amongst visitors to get excited about the classics, Grecia is now better known um, than it ever was. And I've been on a years-long campaign to make Grecia a household name in the United States. I am failing, unfortunately, at this, but I am still very dedicated to it. <laughs> well, they'll just have to come to Rome. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And by the way, Grecia, in a way, is like the original base for a lot of Roman dishes. It's yeah. pasta that's tossed with guanciale in its rendered fat, pecorino romano, and black pepper. And when you add tomato to that, the product is a matriciana. When right. you add egg either whole or just yolks, the it's consequences, carbonara. carbonara. Right, right. So I think for sure, the number of dishes that you find on Roman menus has diminished. Um, and things like aglio, olio e peperoncino, spaghetti served with garlic, oil, and chili, which used to just be like sort of drunk food that yes. places would send out to their patrons if they were or drinking you, too or much. when you come home late at night and all you have in your cabinet is a package of dried pasta. I mean, you know, totally. you can make dinner. Yeah. yeah, it's that, like those dishes, cacio e pepe evolved as a drunk dish and puttanesca is a, a drunk food dish. They're things that you make really quickly. Um, Filling, they, they, they fill the bill. <laughs> totally. Um, there's a little bit more technique involved in cacio e pepe, which is I think why it's so popular in, in restaurants or trattorias because you don't have to make sure that the sauce doesn't break. You just, you count on the kitchen being able to execute their millionth cacio e pepe for you um, and making a really smooth sauce. Whereas at home, sometimes it's a little bit clumpy or but, yeah, I mean, I think... Well, it's interesting. I was um, talking to another colleague, in, and she was um, doing some research in, in some old Roman recipes, on, and Luigi Carancina was trying to write recipes in Alta Cucina with a high, you know, higher cuisine um, and make it, I guess, more like a, a codified recipe. And if you look back in the, I guess, in the 60s when one of his books was published, there is cream in the cacio e pepe, yeah. which of course is not non-existent, and it's it's not there for real. And and people try to do that with carbonara as well. Um, 
There were onions in some of the first carbonara yeah. recipes yes. that were recorded, and now that is considered blasphemy. And if right. you bring that fact to people's attention, they'll just dismiss you completely. Right. And and it's not that it's bad, you know. And there's not that one dish is necessarily, and I hate the word authentic. Authenticity <laughs> should be just thrown out the door. Not authentic, but classic. What is the classic dish? You know what also has sort of fallen off the repertoire, if you will, are some of the baked pastas. Cannelloni, cannelloni, stuffed cannelloni. Um, and they would be the crepes and, and not necessarily the dried um, pasta shells in the tubes filled with uh, a cheese sauce. Um, and then baked with a, another bechamel on top. Of course, gotta have the bechamel. It's, you don't find that on Roman menus that much anymore. I mean, anywhere anymore that I've, that I've recently seen in the past few years of, of visiting. A lot of baked pastas are baked pastas. Sunday only, and you've got to be a regular to get the intel. Like, the server won't tell you that they're available unless mm -hmm. you have been a frequent customer. All right, any reasoning for that that you can think of? Uh, they're more labor-intensive to make. Labor's expensive. Um, and, I mean, as you rightfully say, a lot of the, the sort of huge canon of Roman recipes have really been narrowed to uh, a select few. And, you know, back in the day, people used to have a lot more selection than just carbonara, caccia, pepe, gricia, matriciana, but there were daily specials. And that custom of having, like, tripe on Saturday or um, fish on Friday and only fish or something vegetal, mm -hmm. like, that has sort of fallen out of use, although I would mention that on Fridays you do find pa uh, pasta and mains that feature fish. That canon of like the daily specials has really has really changed because mm. dining has changed. That's right. And mama's gone back to work. Mama is not at home in the kitchen. Yeah. Of course. I mean, rent in Rome is expensive. People plan their families because having more than one child or having one child at all is like really, really pricey. People think about finances in a way that they didn't have to um, before the euro. Um, and, you know, granny doesn't want to necessarily have to be in the kitchen all day long and I mean, women shouldn't necessarily always be defined by their ability to make food, so... Yeah. Well, now, you get to know a lot of the younger, newer Roman chefs on a very personal basis, and you've seen them go through a lot of transformation of their menus. Um, in fact, years ago, we talked about younger chefs who were going back to the classic and, and in fact, antique um, cookbooks in the ancients, for inspiration of the recipes, what do you what do you attribute to this new wave of some of these old classic pasta dishes coming back and these younger chefs embracing them? Well, I think that this is driven by a nostalgia for the past. Because if you are a chef who's under forty, you don't have memories of eating like garofalato or um, even necessarily like fettuccine with uh, rigali pollo or chicken hearts and gizzards like those old school dishes might have already fallen off the menu by the time you were going out dining, but mm. leaf through, mm -hmm. you know, granny's cookbook or take a look at an old cookbook or a magazine and you'll see things that feel really Roman in their ingredients and their food preparation approaches, but you may never have tasted. So it's a, it's an easy way to explore while still doing the navel gazing thing that a lot of Roman <laughs> chefs do. <laughs> yeah. I mean... <laughs> Certainly dates me. I mean, it <laughs> makes me feel old. And I said, yes, we're bringing back these vintage dishes. And I'm going, hey. <laughs> so, when I lived here, that's the only thing we could get, right? Hmm. <laughs> at this point, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, Katie turns the tables on me and asks me a question. 
She shares her predictions for what might happen in the food scene in Rome as well. So stay tuned. Are you wondering how you can change up that turkey soup from the leftovers from the holidays? Hmm. Instead of using the same old pasta and rice, which ends up getting a little too swollen and mushy after a couple of days, why don't you try cooking with kamut berries? Kamut berries are really a young green wheat that comes from the Middle East, and it dates back centuries. They cook up, they take a longer time to cook, but if you soak them the night before, it's not too bad. You can cook them in about 40 minutes, which can simmer in the soup. Or you can cook them in a pressure cooker, or cook them without soaking them a little bit longer before you add them to the soup. They will retain their they will retain their shape and their crunch, and they're a nutty tasting berry. And Bob's Red Mill sells them on their website at bobsredmill.com. And don't forget to use Taste Twenty Five for twenty five percent off your order. We are back and listening to a conversation that I had recently with Katie Parla in Rome. Here, she turns the tables on me and asks me a question. So what are things that, like, are there vegetables or certain things that you have great memories of that you might find in home kitchens now but not in trattorias? You know, a lot of times you would um, find not um, the greens, the vegetables, they were always sort of kind of the same things, you know, the bitter greens that were, you know, sautéed in oil and the broccoli rabe always... But one thing that I've noticed I don't see so much on the menus are the um, funghi trifolati. Yeah. Um, perhaps, you know, sautéed with lemon, with a lot of garlic and lemon mushrooms that are, are thinly sliced and just very slowly sautéed mm. in a lot of oil and a little bit of butter with a lot of so garlic. Mm. You Sounds don't see delicious. that. And, that's, and that was a very common um, contorno, side dish. Yeah. And now mushrooms are really expensive, so they're like mm. in the posh places, like around the corner from where we're sitting, Al Moro yes. has mushroom dishes, but they're like 23 euros for a starter, which is definitely outside the normal consumption patterns of your average Roman and might be the whole bill at a trattoria if you only go out for a couple of courses. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that on prices. And you know, it's interesting because in coming back several times over, I mean, we try to, my husband and I come back every couple of years, we try to, you know, keep in touch with what's going on and and for us it's like coming home again because we lived here for many years what about prices at restaurants they really certainly there are the fancy the fancy restaurants the fancy restaurants um that of course have the high prices but by and large what are you what are you seeing in terms of the restaurants and the prices well I wouldn't draw like necessarily a strict analogy with Paris, but there is more of that sort of affordable bistro dining where the portions of each dish might be smaller, but they're encouraging you to get a number of dishes. Whereas mm-hmm. for like a good decade mm-hmm. there, um, certainly from like 08, 09 until the present, a lot of the trend was to make giant pasta portions to attract people because there's so much margin on large pasta portions. And after the crisis, people couldn't afford to go out as much. So one way to entice diners was to give them a lot of carbs. Um, Yeah, prices are, prices are interesting. And, you know, Romans, like everyone on the planet, more or less, um, are value-driven consumers. So if they feel like they're getting a deal, they'll go to a trattoria that serves giant portions, but they're not going to get the whole parade of dishes anymore because it's unaffordable to get an antipasto 
a primo, secondo, contorno, right. dolce, wine, right. amaro, coffee, all that stuff. And everybody's watching their weight and watching their calories yeah. and eating healthfully. And totally. Not that it's not not that it's not healthy food. Well, not in the not in the size portions that they right. serve now, right. which has changed certainly since I moved here in two thousand and three. Like a lot of the a lot of the portions have gotten very large, like unreasonably large. Um, but you know the the price the price point for ingredients is still really low, um, and most Romans cook at home. I mean, people go out occasionally. The net income isn't high enough to permit you know multiple time a week dinners out for most people. Um, so people are doing a lot of cooking at home, and when they go out, they know how much things cost. So they're very critical of, of prices. They don't want to pay more than 10 or 11 euros for a carbonara or more than 12 euros for salt and boca. And there are these certain, I should remember more terms from my econ class from a million <laughs> years ago, but like there's sort of these, this idea that like a gelato shouldn't cost more than 2 euro 50 for two scoops. Like they won't pay more than that. Um, just as sort of like a collective, the city has decided that you pay a certain amount for something right, and anything right. more than that is very posh. Well, it's like anything else. You don't want to price yourself out of the market. Mm-hmm. You really, you know, and yet, and yet there's that, that conundrum. You don't want to price yourself out of the market, but if you charge too little, they think maybe it's not as good. Right? Sure. Yeah. And when you're charging lower prices, it's implied that you're using poorer products and you right. can taste, you can taste the difference. Right. I'm sure even in three years, if you compare. To Interesting you brought that up, a, a, a poorer product. Um, there is, of course, this you know it's this trend that's international now, going to um, organic, um, farm-driven menus, things that are fresh, non-processed foods. Um, I have noticed more and more of that entering into the city restaurants here in Rome. And oh, for sure. I mean, walk around this neighborhood in the morning, and from ten to noon, it's nothing but like partially transformed. Or processed foods getting delivered from like freezer trucks. It's really clear. I mean, it's not mm-hmm. like one neighborhood exclusively. It's it's a phenomenon that's present all over town. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've been focusing mostly on pasta dishes because when one thinks of eating in Italy or eating in Rome, what do you think of? Of course, you think of you know. I think of intestines, but I'm yeah, weird. Well, you think of intestines. Okay, <laughs> I did have some intestines this trip. Yes. <laughs> Um, but they think of, we think of spaghetti, we think of, of pasta dishes. But there are the classic second, secondi, or second course dishes, the meat dishes mm-hmm. and fish dishes. Um, many of those are enjoying a renaissance as well and, and have never really fallen out of fashion, but you don't find them necessarily outside of Rome. And I'm thinking maybe of Codala Vacinara. Sure. Um, lingua and salsa verde, salsa verde right. tongue with green sauce um, so payata pay, well payata you're going to find and payata being the intestines, the intestines and innards of you know of veal um, talk a little bit about some of those dishes and, and where you're most likely to find those and why so the awful dishes that we just listed um, whether it's the poor cut oxtail um, cooked with celery and tomato, which is cotola vaccinata, or lingua and salsa verde, tongue with green sauce, or payata, the intestines of milk fed veal cooked in tomato sauce and tossed with rigatoni. Those are really classic secondi, well, in the case of the payata, that's a primo, but those are in trattoria, especially in um, institutions like Almoro or Armando al Pantheon or let's say newer institutions like Cesare al Casaletto or Tavernaccio da Bruno um, that is comfort food for a lot of people 
And sometimes restaurants don't even bother listing them in translation on the English menu, knowing that they're really just for like a Roman audience. Although, of course, a lot of foreigners do enjoy them. Um, what's really interesting to me is that you don't just find them in those trattoria venues anymore, but they're showing up in fast food. Roman fast food, invented by Romans, things like the trapezino. Trapezino, <laughs> I was thinking immediately trapezino, of course, which are um, like a stuffed, well, it's not even pita, it's a, it's a bread, but a stuffed, a little stuffed bread triangle of a sandwich. Yeah. Right. And it's, they've got, uh, it's a and pizza they, pita. Right, a pizza pita. And they've got them, um, now they've, they've branched out into cities in, well, I don't, they, in New York they have them. I don't know yeah. if any other cities in You can in get the them US. in Testaccio or near the Roman Stadium or mm-hmm. in the Lower East Side right. <laughs> of New York. Same, same. <laughs> right. Um, and, and also street, you mentioned street food. Street food is another thing that never, you would never see street food. Food sold on the street that were primarily, um, let's say, special first course snacks or fest uh, holiday um, feast food that then they would be on the street now yeah. there now there are street food yeah uh, so much of it such um, as souple absolutely there's... you know souple when I moved here was just a rice croquette that was um, seasoned with a like a tomato meat sauce wrapped around a piece of mozzarella, breaded and fried. That was souple. And now you have all souple different flavors. Souple telefono. See. So that when you took a bite, <laughs> and would, the mozzarella would melt and come out like a long wire of a telephone. Well we, use, well, we use cell phones now, yeah. so you know, I, I guess they, they dropped the Al Telefono because it didn't make sense to the younger generation. Yeah, I know, like teenagers have no idea what I'm talking about when I say Supli Al Telefono. But yeah, like Supli, now I had one that had Cacio e Pepe flavor today. Um, there's Radicchio and Gorgonzola, or even Porchetta flavored. So a lot of the, the street food, or what you might instead call fast food, because it's, it's served in brick and mortar places, and often parts of like chains, or at least invented by people who then sort of scale it, like Stefano Caligari at Trapizzino or Gabriele Bonci at Pizzarium and Panificio Bonci. Like, those things are adapted from existing formats that Romans are comfortable with, and it's just treated in a certain way, and they cut the price because you're not sitting down and getting service. So you don't have to sit down for, like, a 12-euro um, Tonarelli Catre Pepe. You can have a 2-euro Supli with similar flavors and probably like similar calories considering it's fried. Well, and and that is also kind of how people are, a lot of people are eating these days, grazing. You know, they're coming out and getting just a little bite. They're not going to, you know, everyone's so busy, 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 busy. They can't sit down and take the time to have a two or three hour dinner. Of course. They just want to grab a bite and go, right? Much less lunch. I mean, a lot of the labor contracts have changed in the past decade. So you don't have the luxury of meal tickets that you might get as a supplement to your income if you worked at City Hall or you don't you don't have two hours to kill at lunch but you've got to be you know back at your desk in an hour um, so there are yeah there are very clear economic shifts that we can point to whether it's the the rise of um, freelancer contracts which come with fewer benefits or the va- the absence of full-time contracts which people mm. used to count on um, the financial crisis led to youth unemployment, which put a real stress on families who had to support adult children even longer than they had budgeted. Um, all of these things mean that people still want to eat outside of the house, and sometimes they don't have that much time to do it. So this fast food or street food fills that void in a delicious way. I mean, sometimes yeah, it's terrible, yeah. and, but in most cases that, that I'm recommending, right. it's very good. <laughs> and of course, pizza. Pizza's here to stay. Pizza's not going anywhere. Pizza's been a fast food that Romans have embraced for a long time. It's not going anywhere. If anything, we're just getting more of it. 
little bit of a dichotomy on who says which is better here in Rome because a new pizza has sort of, you know, gained a lot of traction over the past couple of years. For better or for worse, tell me about this flatbread, thin crust pizza. Okay, so here's the deal. I eat a lot of pizza. There is a thin crusted Roman style pizza which used to be traditional, it's been around for a long time, but the dimensions have gotten larger, whereas the demand has gotten higher at the same time. So places like Emma, for example, which I used to heavily recommend, um, now we're making a lot of pizzas, they're much bigger, the temperature of the oven fluctuates too much, and so you end up getting kind of like a floppy, flaccid, soupy pizza instead of a crispy, crunchy flatbread, which was the Roman standard in you know the post-war era. There are some exceptions, like there's a really clever couple of guys at Cento Tanta Grammi in Cento Celle, and they're thinking about, like, for, this sounds so, like, corny, but, like, the architecture of a pizza, when you <laughs> build a pizza, you want it to, like, have substance, and it can't be paper thin because then it just absorbs all the moisture and it doesn't cook right. properly. Um, so they've made not quite a thick Neapolitan-style crust, but the base is closer to the Roman style. It's crispy and chewy. But it has substance to it, so much different than like the thin rolled ones, which dominate all of the all of the spots yeah. in the center. So, what do you see in the future in your crystal ball for Roman restaurants? Do you think this they're going to sustain this this offering of the classics? Are there going to be people who are going to be demanding it? Because do they remember? Do they know? Uh, where are we Great going? Question. Where are we going? I mean, just purely based on the new openings that I get innumerable uh, press releases for on the daily, I would say the gastropub is going to be a big thing, the Mm -hmm. place where you can get pizza, but then also pasta, but also burgers and sandwiches and cocktails. So it caters to a wide audience from 11 a.m. until 1 a.m. That's going to be really hot. I mean, it's been hot for a while, but trends in Rome don't move very quickly. Um, the sort of fine dining inspired tasting menu, but at lower prices, Mm -hmm. um, that sort of format, which is drawing some inspiration from like Parisian neo bistros, uh, that's going to continue to be a thing. Um, and like the sort of all day cafe, all day cafe, you know, no things that feel Roman by the way, you know, I, I have to say all day cafe. I've noticed a couple of restaurants, um, that I was looking at here in Rome and it says, serves all day, which is such a break. Mm-hmm. Even in the U.S., even in, you know, in, in New York, we're getting restaurants that now serve all day, which is a real break because mm-hmm. it was, you know, many restaurants didn't even serve lunch. But if they serve lunch, they will, they're now serving throughout that dead period. God forbid you get hungry at 3 o'clock, you know, when nothing would be open. And now restaurants are staying open all day long. And I noticed that here in Rome as well. So yeah. that's, I can see that. I could see what you just said as a trend that's coming. Katie Parler, you're always a font of knowledge of anything Roman that has to, to be going on with food. And now you're taking that expertise to Istanbul as well, right? Yes. And well, they called it New Rome back in the day, so it's only, <laughs> it's, only, uh, it's only fair that I spend some time there too. Yeah, well, excellent. Always a pleasure to talk to you. So Thanks so much. So fun talking to you. Thank you. Well, thanks again so much to Katie Parla for that inspiring conversation on Roman cuisine. And don't forget to visit Katie at her website, katieparla.com, and look for her cookbook, 
Tasting Rome, fresh flavors and forgotten recipes. And thanks to all of you for listening to A Taste of the Past. A Taste of the Past is recorded at heritageradionetwork.org, where you can find all of the past episodes, as well as many other great programs. You can also find me on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to my engineer, Noam Osband, and the entire team here at Heritage Radio Network. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash heritage. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.